and welcome to The Bridge to the Bay with Dr. Varis. I'm Dr. Matt Varis, and this is episode four with Simon Jeffries. Me and Simon met when we were 10 at an enrichment program and have been best friends ever since, even though our politics have always differed quite a bit. Simon's always been a staunch conservative, even since we were kids, which is a little strange. So we talk about that. But that's what led him into a career in politics, where he's currently a partner at a consulting firm in Toronto that covers political issues across Canada. Now, he worked his way up from being an intern to actually being press secretary to the Ontario government, getting Doug Ford elected. Then he tried his hand at the federal level until he ended up where he is currently. So we talk about his rise throughout these elections from the inside in the war room. We even talk about Toronto's famous crack-smoking mayor, Rob Ford. So if any of that sounds of interest, please listen along. And if not, hopefully one of the future episodes will be of interest. Well, hey, Simon, how's it going? Oh, not too bad yourself. How are things down in uh, sunny California? Can't complain, can't complain. Um, I mean, probably around a similar temperature these days in May, but uh, it definitely made the, the winter a lot easier for me. Yes. <laughs> One of the nicer ones I've had. In oh, you didn't you didn't miss the uh, the Canadian uh, the Canadian snow and sleet. It's just you know it's not really my style. I just I never really integrated with the things you got to do in the winter to stay sane. I think like I don't ski or snowboard or skate or cross country ski snowshoe. I don't build snow forts outside. I just don't like the cold, and I don't like you know all that comes with it. So I'll take the heat. You know, that's, I think that's my Middle Eastern blood in me. I'd rather the desert and the, the scalding heat than the cold. There you go. You're in the right place then. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's worked out. Um, so just for everyone listening, so my friend Simon, uh, we've known each other since we were 10, so we'll get into that. Um, but could you just tell everyone what it is you do, Simon? Because you've had a big boy job for, I think one of the longest out of our friend group um, and uh, you're making big waves in Canada. So could you just maybe broad strokes what, what it is you do? Sure. So my, uh, my background is in politics um, spent um, pretty much since university, fresh out of university uh, spent my entire career working uh, in politics for uh, conservative politicians um, at Queens park um, and on parliament Hill. Um, but in the last year or so um, I've, uh, um, partnered up with a couple of my uh, previous colleagues and we've started our own um, consulting company, public affairs nice. company. Um, so we uh, offer a wide range of services, um, government relations, public relations, um, crisis communications, um, basically taking all of the skills each of us have developed over our previous careers in politics mm -hmm. um, and offering it to, uh, to our, our clients to give them the kind of the, the best service offering we can. Nice. Wow. Um, it, was that always in the plans that you might move into something like that? Or you're just kind of riding the waves of, of the election cycles as they came and you'd, you'd make a decision as it came up? Uh, listen, it, it's, it's politics is certainly um, uh, a very cyclical industry. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it, 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 it's very uh, it changes based off of obviously who's in government. Right. Um, what kind of opportunities present themselves like that? So this is an opportunity to get a little bit more 
um, security. Um, mm-hmm. Don't have to work the uh, twenty-hour days that I used to when I was uh, was a full-time staffer. <laughs> yeah. um, so this was always kind of in the back of my mind as a next step when I was uh, when I was uh, um, done uh, mucking around in the mud <laughs> in politics for the time being. Not saying I won't right. go back at some point in time, though. Right. Right. Well, I just from the outside, it's been great to to see what what you've done, what you've accomplished. Because um, really, you've, you've talked about working in politics since you know we were kids. Since I knew, I'm sure since even before then. Um, and to see you actually follow through and and take those next steps, and you know, kind of see what you're working on on the news, really, right? And develop out in yeah. Canada. It's it's amazing, man. So uh, that's great. I'm. I don't know if it's weird to hear, but I'm proud of you, man. It's great to see you <laughs> you doing it out there. Well, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, so how do we know each other? Like when? That's a, so we would have first met, you said 10. I, I would have had to, had to, uh, I think it was grade five, right? I was probably guessing later than that, but, um, we would have met at Macquarie, right? Yeah. It'd been probably the first time we would have crossed paths. Yeah. So um, for people listening, I guess that's kind of like a, an enrichment program that we both went to, um, I guess, one day a week um, mm-hmm. when we were in elementary school. Um, so we would have overlapped at that time. I would have I would have guessed like grade seven or eight, but you're, you're, you're suggesting even earlier than that? Because I, I went to a different school for seven, eight, remember? Oh, yeah. So maybe grade six, five, if you're probably right. Yeah, it was it was five, six. Really going back into my memory bank here, but yeah, so grade <laughs> five or six, we would have met. Um, we would have went to a one day a week kind of um, enrichment program, mm-hmm. um, and that and that's where we, we we met and we hit it off right away. And you know, we, we had we had lots of fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That yeah, and those those times I, I always remember looking forward to it. It was like a getaway camp once a week. You could take a breath of fresh air. Um, but yeah, it was it was great that we got along and. And back home, we actually lived a lot closer than um, than anyone else, I guess, in the classes. We're, we're really quite close like, within walking distance. So yeah. it was nice. We could kind of be friends outside of that one a week, one day a week thing as well. Yeah, because you went to your your kind of K to six school was Saginaw, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry was, for everybody who who doesn't isn't familiar with uh, Cambridge <laughs> geography, but uh, I'm just recollecting my brain here. So just live, work with me. Yeah, it's all good. It's just, um, yeah, we were supposed to go to the same middle school, right? And then at that point, I got recommended to go to uh, a full time enrichment program um, with a bunch of weirdos. So. Um, you know, I, I had to make the transition of schools anyway. So I figured like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. I'll see what it's like. I didn't want to leave my friends, but I figured uh, I got enough advice from older people, principals, teachers, things like that, that I should give it a shot. So I figured give it a year, see what happens. I can always go back, but uh, you know, say la vie. It, it worked out. It was quite nice in the end. Um, but then we got to reconnect in high school where we met back again. Like, Nothing ever happened. Um, Preston Panthers. So Go yeah, Panthers. Preston Panthers. So it's really funny how it came back full circle. Um, so, you know, a reason why I think um, I enjoyed like getting to know you so well, like as a kid, is that um, you're really smart, which is obvious. Um, but 
you often took opposing political views on things than I had. And I didn't really get it, I guess, mostly as a kid, I guess. Um, and I was just a happy-go-lucky kid. And, you know, I think most younger people generally lean left, um, generally want people to get along. You know, they're, they like people to have their rights and their freedoms, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, my family's liberal, immigrant family, and things like that. Um, but when we'd actually talk about whatever the issue was, I'd find out that the reason you took your stance was very well thought out. And it was based on sort of historical precedent and like um, if there was a bill or a law or something that was enacted, you really um, took in the weight of what that meant. So what all the consequences could be, whether it was going to happen immediately or not, you were wary enough that there's plenty of hyster historical evidence that um, if you're not careful with your words, you're not careful with the, the type of bills or laws that you're passing, that can give the wrong sort of power or um, I guess freedom to use liberties that maybe the government shouldn't or, or not everyone would, would want. Um, so when would you say you discovered you were a conservative. <laughs> so I like to joke that I became a conservative um, when I was 10 years old. Um, okay. I was one of the first uh, um, kind of elections I remember as a kid. Um, so that was the 2003 Ontario election. And okay. I remember driving um, somewhere with my family and talking about the election. And I remember saying, that I was cheering for Ernie Eves, the progressive conservative premier to win because okay. his name was very similar to my favorite golfer at the time, Ernie Els. Ernie Els's name. <laughs> uh, that's the story I like to tell. Um, obviously, when you're 10, I don't think you have a clue what any political party <laughs> believes in, but yeah. that's, that's, uh, that, was, that was me staking my ground based off of sound, uh, sound reasoning, which is <laughs> sounding similar. Yeah. Um, but then when I was in grade seven or eight, I can't remember exactly which grade, I had the opportunity to go to Queens Park and work as a legislative page. So could you just tell everyone what, what that is? Yeah, so it, the, the Queen, Queens Park, the Ontario legislature, um, has a program where they um, let students in grade seven or eight, um, you know, they take them out of this classroom for four to six weeks, uh, depending on the time period and uh, puts them to work, um, working inside the chambers of the, of the legislature. Wow. Um, so they, uh, they you, you kind of help deliver the mail and, and make sure that everybody's got the prop, pa proper paperwork on their desk. Mm -hmm. um, give uh, the politicians the water if they're thirsty. <laughs> um, you pretty much are, are uh, little grunt, grunts, little minions that run around and just take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. Yeah. But as a part of that, you have the opportunity to sit there and witness um, democracy firsthand you're mm -hmm. in the chambers you're 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 watching as the politicians are shouting at each other from <laughs> across the way um and, and and that's really where i kind of really developed i think for the first time a true true passion in politics and, mm -hmm. and it was there you know just kind of taking it all in watching the, the debates at the time um that i i came to the conclusion that i was a i was a conservative um mm -hmm. and from there i was hooked and i 
you know, <laughs> went home and, and I read everything I possibly could. You know, I read the news every single day. I'd read, have magazine subscriptions about current events. Yeah. You know, I'd read um, political documents. I, I, I just consumed everything. And, and, <laughs> and, and that, that's kind of where I began to stake out my, uh, uh, my, my conservatism, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That it's great that they have a program like that. And it, it seems to have worked out exactly as whoever would have planned it would have hoped, right? It's to inspire the next generation to pursue politics. Yeah, right? it, it's a really incredible program. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of alumni who've come out of that program who've actually went on to serve as, uh, um, you know, politicians or senior political advisors or, mm -hmm. you know, just going on to other great careers that are completely outside of the political world. But I think yeah. they still probably picked up good skills um, through the, the taking everything in at a pretty young age. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, like, do you remember any particular topics of discussion that you started to see yourself leaning right on or was it a general takeaway? Um, <laughs> so this is going to sound completely random and out of left field. Okay. Um, but one of the, it was a, a minor little fringe issue at the time, but mm -hmm. this would have been, must've been 2005, 2006. Um, uh, there were farmers in rural, um, rural Ontario who were dairy farmers. Um, okay. and they wanted to be able to sell their milk raw. Okay. Um, uh, the current law, the current rules are that the milk has to be pasteurized and have went through uh, some sort of a process. Mm -hmm. um, and it was these farmers' positions that they didn't want to do that. They had clientele that wanted to drink the raw milk and they wanted to be able mm -hmm. to sell that. And it was yep. a big issue at the time. And uh, um, the conservatives, there was one particular MPP who was out there on the front lines holding <laughs> protests with these farmers and yeah. drinking raw milk on the front lawns of Queen's Park. <laughs> And that was the one that stuck out in my mind. I was like, this sounds like a ridiculous thing. If they want to, <laughs> if they've got people who want to buy raw milk, yes. why aren't they allowed to sell them that raw milk? Why does uh -huh. there have to be this kind of, you know, rules and restrictions that, that um, kind of get in the way of that whole transaction? And that was the one that, uh, if you had to ask me um, right now that stuck out, that's the one. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of out of left field, but it, it makes sense in the end because it's uh, it was such a practical sort of stance to take. And I mean, as I've gotten older, I can really relate more to that perspective as well. It's um, there's adults that have made their decisions and, you know, it's not necessarily up to mommy and daddy, the government <laughs> to tell you everything you can and can't do at a certain point. Right. It just it takes away people's individuality and for those that can make the wise decisions um tend up tend to get limited over time in aggregate um if, they, if they're not allowed to make their own decisions so um i guess maybe i didn't appreciate that as much until i've, I've gotten older but now i can i can definitely see both sides here um so i remember around that time as well i'm not sure if this played into your sort of political leanings or not, or if it was just uh, after the fact that you kind of enjoyed the philosophy behind it. But I remember you talking a lot about Ayn Rand when <laughs> we were younger, which was also really weird because those are the books, like the Fountainhead is one of the longest books in English literature, right? And yeah. uh, most kids aren't reading that. And if they do, it's like to prove a point that they could read something 
large or something like that. But for you, you read it, you internalized it, and like, um, I don't know. It just it seemed to to resonate with you in some way. Would that be yeah, fair to I, say? I, yeah, I think I think uh, lots of kids who are you know figuring out their conservatives like to go and read Ayn Rand. I certainly did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, partly I'm sure is to, uh, as you said, show that I could read a really big book and sound smart <laughs> talking about it. But you know, there's there's lots of ideas within that that were would have, were certainly appealing to me at the at that age. Yeah. Yeah, I I think like I've heard some people talk about Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand more recently as well. Um, like I, I'm not familiar really with her philosophies, but I think it does relate to individual choice a lot as well, right? Um, yeah, and- yeah, yeah. She's she's certainly um, kind of on the more abstract realm of kind of political political philosophy, where it's 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 you know government shouldn't really exist at all. It's kind of like a completely laissez-faire, free market uh, um, capitalist system. Um, I see. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly haven't uh, picked up one of her books probably since high school, but yeah. uh, maybe this old trip down memory lane will <laughs> encourage me to, <laughs> to open one up again. Yeah. Well, I just I just find it funny how we we're kind of we kind of go in cycles of sort of the social and political issues that we get all hung up on. And I think um, we're in another cycle that we had around 30 years ago and we're going through it again um, where things are very polarized right now. Um, And there's some sort of what used to be called common sense down the middle that people are starting to feel alienated from. I know at least for myself. Um, yeah, so I, I feel like it'll, she'll continue to be discussed, um, just from having that different perspective. Cause it, it's totally, um, against, I guess what the extreme left wing is parroting these days, um, which is a lot of group think and not questioning, I guess the group consensus, things like that. Um, okay. So, all right. So that puts you around middle school. You became a conservative. You started high school together. Um, what were you doing in high school surrounding politics? Were you kind of just waiting till you, you got out to university? Or were you volunteering anywhere, keeping your eyes on any issues, things like that? No, I, I like pretty much immediately um, after, after um, that legislative page program, um, mm-hmm. I immediately was hooked on politics, as I said. Um, so the day I turned 14, um, which is kind of uh, <laughs> the, the minimum age you can be to be a, a party member, um, I uh, bought my first party membership in the Ontario PC party and the Conservative Party of Canada. <laughs> Worked on my first campaign nice. as a 14 year old, um, you know, wow. putting together lawn signs and, and, and knocking on doors. That would have been, I think, the 2007 election campaign um, in Ontario. Okay. Um, and Who was running there? So that would have been the leader of the Ontario PC party at the time would have been John Tory. Um, John Tory. Okay. People remember, they just, they, they refer to it as the, uh, the faith-based schools campaign. Um, okay. So I just, yeah, I don't remember it. <laughs> no, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it was, it was an interesting campaign. So he, he had promised to, you know, how Ontario funds uh, a separate, um, uh, They've got a public school board and a Catholic school board. 
Right. Yeah. He promised to open up uh, public school funding to a bunch of other faith-based schools as well. Right. And, okay. Uh, it's it's uh, now kind of become a colloquial in uh, in Canadian politics for a terrible policy announcement that completely <laughs> sunk a campaign. Yeah. Um, so damn, he did not win. <laughs> okay. But I was uh, you know 14 at the time, and I was helping out and volunteering, and I think I've at least knocked on a door in every single election campaign uh, provincially or federally. So. Wow. Just a, yeah. a model conservative there for them. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Yeah, now that you're saying it, I mean, I didn't realize that was when the decision was made. I just remember people talking about basically Catholic schools had their own set of funding, and then they also received the public school funds, so then they were just better funded than all the public schools. And then it was because they were teaching faith-based curriculum, I guess. Yeah, it, it actually goes it goes back to pretty much confederation that there would be a, a separate school board funded for um, both public and, and Catholic education. Is that that's like constitutional or something like not mixing religion with? Yeah, education I, I, I'm or pretty something? sure it's enshrined in some some sort of act somewhere that that's yeah. uh, that's that's con- uh, considered the constitution. Yes. Wow. So, like, were you aware of? these decisions being made and the weight they carried at that age, or you were kind of just wanted to help out as at, at, at that point in time, a, a conservative could have said anything and I probably would have been on the, the sidelines yeah. cheering it on. Yeah. Right. And I see. I was, I was in the, the, the back of the campaign office, you know, sticking those little metal things into the bottom of election signs, um, and, <laughs> and, you know, putting flyers and envelopes. Um, yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, dealing with the, the weight of, of policy announcements and how they're communicated or anything like that. So yeah, at the time it, I, I thought everything that was happening around me was the coolest thing in the world. Hey, and could very well have been. Yeah. Um, were there any other kids like your age doing the same thing or you were the, the one? No, there, there's, there's, um, um, every, political party for the most part in Canada has like a youth wing. Um, so, um, you know, I wasn't really involved. We, we refer to them as tiny Tories in the conservative party. Okay. I, I didn't really get involved with the, the tiny Tories per se until university, but there's, there's ki- there were kids just like me, I'm sure all across the province <laughs> who were also volunteering on campaigns at age 14 rather yeah. than, you know, playing basketball, road hockey. <laughs> yeah. I was playing basketball for sure. <laughs> at that time. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. I could just picture it like, uh, you know, you can see the TV shows in America or even documentaries on elections. The scale is so enormous, but it's well-documented. So you can start to see behind the scenes where they film the staffers and the youth and stuff. And, Really, it seems like that's the heart of the campaign. It's those those staffers, the volunteers are really where you get the manpower. Um, so it really takes an army to to get these elections cycles through. Um, was, were, was there sort of um, like a purpose that was articulated to the, the young volunteers and staffers when you joined? Or it was sort of, there's bunch of things going on help where you can or was there like a you know an on purpose sort of galvanizing of the spirit 
Yeah, like every, every, like I volunteered on a local campaign. So that's like at the riding level. Um, I'm sure everybody's, you know, experiences are a bit different at the riding level. Um, but it really all depends on kind of the, the local campaign and, and who's involved and, and uh, um, you know, how much time they make for you. So I was lucky that there was people who, you know, found it, I guess, maybe entertaining that uh, there was this 14 year old boy. And at the time I probably looked like I was 11, um, <laughs> uh, hanging out in the back of the campaign office. And they certainly, yeah. you know, they took time to answer whatever questions I had and kind of teach me the, uh, the basics of, of how campaigns are run and how campaigns are won. And, you know, the lessons I learned on my very first campaign still hold true to, to campaigns today. So um, I, I was certainly lucky. Um, it, it all depends on who's who's involved at the local level and and, and the interest that they take in taking the youth. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like they they had a a good idea there to inspire that next generation. Just take a little bit of time out of their day, and hopefully, it pay off for the party later on in some small. But way. I was, of course, also a special case there, Matt. So. <laughs> Oh, I know. I know. I, you're you're <laughs> so gung-ho. It would have been I'm tough to, to uh, ignore it. Um, but do you have you had an opportunity now sort of from the other perspective to develop that, that young talent or the young interest? Uh, have you interfaced with young volunteers in a similar way? Well, I haven't been. Um, the last kind of three election campaigns that I worked on mm-hmm. um, were all... Um, from the central campaign rather than the local campaign. So that's when I'm, you know, running out of the the main kind of campaign office right. um, on a communications um, side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I in, in, in my, you know, most recent capacities on campaigns haven't really had any, uh, any involvement uh, with youth in politics or anything like that, but there are yeah. lots of good people out there that uh, do work hard to, to grow the youth presence of, uh, of the conservative party because we really need it. Yeah. Yeah. You say you really need it. Is that like lately or just in general? It's always, it's it's just general. Uh, As you said, I think earlier, earlier, um, it's strange for young people to be conservatives. There's an old, uh, there's an old quote that if you're not a, um, a socialist, um, in your twenties, you don't have a heart, but if you're not a conservative (laughs) in your, your forties, you don't have a brain. So yeah, I think it's been a, a long-standing problem going back decades that the Conservative Party hasn't done as well appealing to the youth as the other political parties in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that's uh, generalized everywhere? Like, would it be the same in the U.S., for instance? I, I would. I would imagine. I would imagine. I, I know that the uh, um, the Republicans um, um, in the states invest a lot of money developing their kind of campus um, college Republican networks. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would certainly probably have stronger kind of a campus movement than the conservative party in Canada. But I think mm-hmm. generally speaking, if you look at kind of the, the polling numbers, um, Democrats still typically win the youth vote, by, vote by very large margins. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Feel like there's a question in there I want to get at, um, related to sort of the psychology of political leanings, um, because there's 
you know, there's a small subset, I guess, that find their party young and stick to it and stick through all of the elections to that party. But, small subset would be, uh, would be, yeah, very small, very small. Yeah. Um, but like you said, generally people start off left and move right as they get older. Um, what are some of the, the factors do you think that lead to that sort of transition over time? I think, um, the biggest one is just as, as you get older and you get more independent and you kind of work your way up, um, um, through your kind of professional career, mm -hmm. um, you start to, um, at least on the fiscal side of things, um, realize maybe I don't like the government taking massive taxes out of my paycheck mm -hmm. every single month. Mm -hmm. They're looking at what the government's spending it on and seeing, is this really necessary? Do we need all of this big social programming? Yeah. Um, so I think it's just kind of the nature of, of how people develop. Um, mm -hmm. They, they, um, you know, they, they, get young families and their priorities change significantly from their, what their priorities might've been when they were in the early twenties. It's just, I think guys, mm -hmm. it's, it's all cyclical. Yeah. Yeah. And are, is there a subset that then escapes back and turns liberal again as they get older? I think it, I think it, it, it varies. I don't think it's, it's safe to, to generalize it too much, but I mm -hmm. generally speaking, um, the conservative party traditionally does well with senior citizens as well. Okay. Yeah. Generally kind of the older you get, um, the, the more conservative you tend to become. Mm -hmm. And so would you say that it's unwise to be a liberal then that you just don't have the full information? <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just asking because, you know, it's, you know, people can just be flippant and say whatever to, to rile up whatever side. But um, I can't help but find myself leaning right now as I've gotten older. And um, especially the last few years where I've seen that sort of the, the compassionate aspect of the liberals has been hijacked. Um, and it's sort of been pulled to its extreme where... Um, you have to be compassionate with no sort of questioning. And that just sounds really uh, unwise and irresponsible to me. Um, and I've, I've kind of seen evidence in, in both Canada and the U.S. of um, sort of the, the liberal. It's, I think it's mostly from the social aspect, socially liberal um, or progressive has gone really out out there of uh, that it's it's sort of lost connection to the the policies that ground like a everyday person in their reality so there's a lot of fight and and talk over you know aspects of life that are really small to most people it's taking up all the time and energy of these political parties um and it's it's really hurting the average person. It seems to me like it's kind of taking um, circumstances that are that have problems but are okay for now that are moving in the right direction, and just qualifying it that moment in time that it's not good enough, 
And so it needs to be burned down to the ground or someone needs to be fired, things like that. And I found it really odd how extreme the left has gotten um, recently because I, I don't think it was like that uh, up until recently since I was a kid. I think the liberals generally, sure, seem to be more like socially compassionate, but there wasn't this extremism uh, related to it. It wasn't bashing conservatives for the fact of being conservative. It was still trying to take the stance of of holding that responsible ground for the socially conscious, but understanding people can have their other points of view, and that's okay. But now it's not okay for some reason. Yeah, no, there's, there's certainly this new, this new kind of tendency of the, the woke, I guess, pers- uh, this woke mob who... Yeah. Uh, you know, if you don't use our language and 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 uh, agree with every you know opinion we have, um, mm-hmm. then you are of um, you are this part of this other evil group of mm-hmm. whether it's you know they they throw around language like racist and you know transphobe or homophobe or all sorts of phobes. Yeah, um, that certainly seems to be a new kind of concerning trend. I think that we're seeing in um, more of the left wing movement and left wing uh, political parties across the world. Mm-hmm. And like, is that a recent thing? Because I don't know the history really, but like, um, I guess the the only extreme version I can think of is when communism has arisen. But I'm wondering if there's sort of uh, examples of sort of the left-leaning political parties in some point historically getting more aggressive in sort of their extremism. Well, I think, I think the, 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 the wokeness that's kind of dominating the, the new kind of political discourse on the left has always existed, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, for centuries, there's always kind of been that fringe kind of um, left-wing just as there's fringe pockets of the right, there's fringe right. pockets of the left. What's yeah. kind of new is we're seeing now political parties completely adopt mm-hmm. um, those former, formerly fringe kind of ideas as the new status quo talking point of the political party. And that's when it gets concerning, right? Yeah. So, so that's certainly, uh, at least in the Western world, a very new, new thing, new trend. What what would cause a whole party to just adopt the fringe? Because it again, it shouldn't be the the largest base in their party, right? It, to me, it doesn't even make it's, it's logical the, sense. The news cycle has changed a lot in the last uh, decades. You know, it used to be right. you get your news from the New York Times or the the Washington Post or CNN. Now people get their news from Facebook, Twitter. Mm-hmm. TikTok even, um, oh, so, <laughs> you know, the news cycle has changed a lot. Um, that's yeah. elevated some of these, these voices, um, and, and given them the more prominence. Um, it, it, it's, it's happening on the right too, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, if you asked Republican, probably strategists 15 years ago, if anybody like a Donald Trump would be elected as the, Republican presidential candidate, they would have laughed in your face. But, right. You know, he kind of was able to capitalize on the same types of things where his Twitter feed um, was able to, one, completely distract the 24 hour 
channels, <laughs> yeah. while also at the same time directly communicating to voters. So that's that's uh, a whole new kind of set of things that that um, new set of communication tools that people have used to kind of take those those ideas directly to people. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to you when Donald Trump got elected, and I, I remember I, I had heard that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, had hired a bunch of Silicon Valley people to do his uh, social media strategy. And it seemed like uh, the Democrats just didn't take it seriously. And to me, that was like the most naive perspective you could take. It was sort of like the old heads saying like, ah, this new thing, eh, we, we know what it is. It's can't compete with us. Yeah, it, you know, um, the United States is a bit different than Canada in that perspective in the sense of what political parties can use, um, can do with data. Um, in, in the United States, it's pretty much open season. Um, they, 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 they know everything there is to know about voters mm -hmm. and are able to highly um, target them with very unique and uh, um, particular messages that nobody else is seeing. Um, Canada has stricter kind of election rules that prohibit that, where you're not allowed to, for example, buy buy data from other kind of data mining sources. Okay. Um, but Trump was certainly the first one. Trump took it to the next level. I think Obama was probably the first one to really truly right. revolutionize the use of digital in, in election campaigning. Mm -hmm. um, but Trump definitely took it to the next level, um, mm -hmm. as well as uh, you saw it with Brexit as well in the UK. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of um, the boisterous anti-establishment person that tells it how it is that really made waves um, on social media, which I, it makes sense to me if you're saying like the medium has certain properties, like it's um, like intensity is what's being pushed. And so if you take an extreme stance, especially if you take an extreme stance, regardless of what the issue is and who you're talking to, it keeps ramping up on the feed. So you're always at the top of people's minds, basically, right? But um, yeah, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you would have heard, you certainly would have heard a Republican strategist on on CNN, but right mm -hmm. beside them would have been a Democratic strategist. And you would right. have heard, um, you know, both sides. Um, yeah. Today, yeah. You're, the algorithms and everything that you're seeing on your smartphone is completely specifically tailored to what you like. Right. Um, so you are only seeing the news that you want to see, and it certainly builds up, um, um, I guess, kind of the, the more extreme sides of things. And it's being wet. Like it, it, for the political parties have certainly taken advantage of that and weaponized it because at the end of the day, um, it's, uh, it's emotion that drives people to the polls and wants yeah. them to vote, right? Anger mm -hmm. is a strong mm -hmm. motivator. Yeah, for uh, sure. It's just the reality of psychology, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I'd, I'd like to probe that a little further if we can. Um, this this isn't going away anytime soon, right? Like you said, TikTok is now emerging. Um, there's whole generations of people that are now of voting age that consume all of their news from social media applications that are siloed, that are um, full of like confirmation bias. So you're only 
listening to the sources that parrot your particular point of view. And I've started to see some ways of trying to get around it. I think that people that just in general are wary of their of having biases and how that can affect them negatively um, become aware of of how it plays in the political realm. Um, so there's like an app I've seen lately called Ground News. Um, I, I think it's American, but uh, it basically categorizes each news story uh, based on if it's left or right leaning. And then it can bring up like a tally. And so like it can look at your Twitter feed, let's say, and it can see like all the people that influence you and their political leanings. And then it can give you like your diet, your political diet. And so I did that. And this was after like I knowingly curated my feed because <laughs> um, I was seeing like crazy left people saying ridiculous shit that wasn't attached to reality. I was like, I'm going to follow them because I don't know what else they're parroting. And it seems like there's a thousand other people that agree with them. So I should probably keep an eye on this. I feel like most people don't do that, but that's exactly how I think. And then when I did that ground news analysis, I was like right down the middle. Um, so that's where I would hope to be because if I don't know what sort of the opposite perspective to mine is, I don't know where the world's going, basically. Like I, I like to interact with everyone, especially if I, I want to do business or science. It's agnostic to who the person is. Um, I got to know all sides, basically, right? Like everyone's human. Everyone's entitled to their opinions. And for me, I'd, I'd rather everyone can, you know, generally live how they'd like to but you know when we live together we have to make compromises and that's fair but i never agree with just saying that oh that person disagrees with me on one issue they're banished to you know the other side of the continent or something um like do you see of of ways to mitigate this like is it something that we have to make kids aware of young in school or something or i think um well, one, I think social media companies have correctly probably identified this as a problem. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of them are proactively taking steps to kind of try and fix their own internal systems. Mm -hmm. Largely because they realize that if they don't, um, governments will go out of their way to try and regulate them um, mm -hmm. substantially. Yeah. Um, so it's par partially out of their kind of self-interest in the fact that they don't want to be regulated more than they already are mm -hmm. or at all. Um, and then secondly, there's a lot of negative coverage that's come out in the past kind of four years um, about some of the practices of these social media companies. Yeah. Um, specifically Facebook, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg is uh, always sweating in front of the, sweating, the so. these days. Yeah. For, for public relations reasons as well, I think they are proactively... Um, um, taking, you know, their own internal steps. Uh, beyond that, I don't pretend to have any, any better answers than that. Um, I'm sure there's probably more we could do at the school level. You're probably right to, um, teach, um, our youth about the importances of looking at things from both sides of an issue. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, 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 I guess it's, it, it, yeah, I, I don't really have, have anything anything beyond that at this point in time. I'd have to put some more thought into it. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about it lately because 
again, this isn't going away. It's going to get more severe over time. I'm sure there's going to be new social media platforms that pop up too that have their own issues. Um, and you know, it just seems that it's younger and younger kids are like internet native and have a device in hand younger and younger. So it seems really important to me to come up with ways to sort of, uh, beat them to the punch and sort of give them tools to to gauge the sort of information that's coming in and discriminate between good sources of information and poor sources of information um identify where biases could lie and trying to do multifaceted research for lack of a better term to to pull out what could be the different perspectives and then find what the center is, find what remains true in all cases. Um, like I can remember probably one of the most useful assignments I've ever done was in the congregated enrichment class in, in grade seven or eight. Um, but it was, our teacher was very concerned about the internet as she should have been and was realizing that, you know, it's, it's open season. People can say whatever they want on the web. There weren't really well-respected sources on the web yet at that time. Um, and so it was kind of flattened. Like, you know, a respectable person that's well thought through that tries to tamper their biases is in line with some blog of person of a person just spouting whatever vitriol they, they feel like shouting that day. And it, it was up to the reader, the consumer, to to decide how to interpret that. And I think... People can get carried away really quick and not realize subconsciously they're being pulled in a particular direction. But I remember this assignment we had um, was specifically to look at, it was a few websites and to try and identify who owned the website, uh, when it started, and if there was like some sort of like underlying fishiness going on that you could pull out. And I don't remember what all the different websites there were to look at, I remember one specific example. And it was uh, a website called Dog Island. And this was a website advertising like a sleepaway camp for dogs. Or basically like, um, like my family, we had a dog that barked a lot. Our neighbors didn't like it. They called the pound too many times. So we had to give them up for adoption because it just was not well behaved. So in cases like that, they're advertising it like, you know, you love your dog. You want them to have a good life. So send them off to Dog Island in, it was like, uh, you know, an island off the coast of China or something like that was where they advertised it. And they had all these beautiful pictures and videos of dogs roaming around in fields, whatever. Um, and, you know, it was, it was well put together, the website. Like, it's high quality images. There wasn't problems with grammar. Um, you know, it looked like something that was professionally put together. And so that can kind of give this subconscious impression of it's trustworthy. But our teacher gave us these tools to sort of get at that, which is the Wayback Machine. So you can trace back what a website used to look like. And then there was another tool, I can't remember, but it, you could see sort of the information of that domain host. And that was just enough to show us that there was something fishy. And so it was that... Um, the Wayback Machine, if you go back to like the first iteration of the website, you can see like the framework of it and it wasn't well put together and it was 
it's the the wording was um, you could see it it wasn't an English native speaker like there was there was issues in that um, there's only like one picture as opposed to the whole site being of images trying to paint this beautiful story um, and then when we could look at the domain name or the domain holder it was this company and it was uh, a Chinese company and you could look it up and you look it up and it's a meat packing factory. And so that was the assignment. It was just to look up what we could find, find the threads and just document what we could. And then we'd take it up later. And so when she told us what the, the answers were to this, it was actually, it was found that Dog Island is basically just a funnel for this Chinese meat company to take people's dog and make dog meat out of it. And we were like 13 years old hearing this, like, what? How could that be? How could someone do that? This is real? What? And the moral of the story was, yeah, this is real. People do that. It may be rare, but now that it's on the internet, it's way more possible to do that than ever before. And her perspective was that the government or whoever is not going to keep up enough to tell you how you're supposed to consume your news or whatever. So it's up to you. Use your own opinion, your eyes, your ears, and you know that brain, and and see if it, if it passes the eye test. I'd actually be be um, very curious in in looking at the data on this, but I would bet that most youth are since they've grown up online, as you said, are actually way more literate to those types of things yeah. than the. Um, older people who are more new, I guess, to the, the World Wide Web. Like my grandma. Media, right? Like, if you think about, um, you know, the problems that people love to identify with the internet, like, you know, the example, like the spreading of fake news, mm -hmm. um, who's more likely to be susceptible to hitting share on, on, a, on a Facebook post of a, a right. fake news article? I, I haven't looked into this. I would wager it's the older people than, than the younger It's my people. grandma, for sure. She, she is so... It's bad. Like I can see she's in it. She's like in that cesspool of her own, like it's almost like her own worst aspects just funneled back into each other. And she's in this cycle of just like really far right conspiracy laden, inaccurate information. And like all the videos on her feed and thing, it's like I take one glance at it. I'm like, oh, this is a farce. They're trying to pull you in or lie to you like that's the kind of stuff i just scroll past you know it doesn't even register to me and she's like in it like this is a real thing it's well produced or whatever people put time into it and to her it's like people could only put together a video that had images and a story and you know good speak or whatever if it was like cnn so it must be trustworthy if it's a packaged piece of content she uh, no matter how much we say it it doesn't register that no like anyone on their phone can make any piece of content and it basically on par with whatever's out there once it's on the internet it's able to be consumed nope 100 percent. yeah so i mean yeah i guess we can't do like a grandma boot camp of uh internet literacy <laughs> but you know we'll see if the if the kids uh can fend for themselves or not i feel like 
they do handle it better, but I think just human nature, right? Like these companies and these algorithms are designed to get under the subconscious of human psychology. So you really have to know what you're looking for, I think, to avoid being sucked in. Yeah, I know it's certainly uh, one of the, the bigger issues of our time. I think that a lot of um, people are, are thinking about this type of thing. I don't know if anybody's come up with a workaround or a solution yet, but um, hmm. it, it, it's a debate that I think is we're just seeing the beginning of. I think that uh, we'll, we'll hear a lot more about this in the next decade. What to yeah. do about the internet. Yeah. Well, that's the kind of, brings up what i've seen in the news recently in canada which is bill c10 i don't know if you've uh been involved following that at all but to me it it i don't i don't know the details really but it seems to me that canada is trying to pass a bill that extends the jurisdiction of the crtc so uh what would that be i can't remember what it would be in canada but it's like the radio and telecommunications regulatory body yeah um so expand their jurisdiction to social media um so that they can limit like a certain certain types of posts i, I can't remember what the details were. yeah so so i mean the bill's obviously um a big bill um that you know it's it's trying to deal with a bunch of different things at the same time mm -hmm. so one it's trying to deal with a lot of the stuff that other countries around the world are trying to deal with, which is, you know, how to stop the spread of, of, of fake information, mm -hmm. um, you know, how to deal with the, the transmission of conspiracy theories and hate speech um, mm -hmm. online. So that's something that I think a lot of countries around the world are dealing with. Right. And the second component of it is um, Canada's got, um, we're always very proud of our, our CanCon rules. Um, so yeah. um, in Canada, um, we've got, you know, rules that anything on the radio or on, on cable TV, a certain percentage of that um, has to be um, Canadian produced um, content. A large percentage. A large percentage. I remember because I worked at the campus radio station and it surprised me. I couldn't play the rap music <laughs> I wanted. So, so um, you know, it, the idea behind those rules are that we're very close, um, obviously uh, share a large border with the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't want American cultural content um, coming in and washing out everything that makes kind of Canada um, unique, um, per se. And and this this type these types of rules are incredibly popular in Quebec. Um, okay. Because Quebec has um, you know their own unique culture and their own unique. Mm -hmm. um, they're they're very proud of their French language. <laughs> so that's yeah. the second thing that they're they're trying to do with this legislation is is to. How do we continue to ensure that there's an adequate amount of Canadian content out there on the Netflixes and the Spotify's and uh, and uh, YouTube's and whatnot? Mm -hmm. um, so they introduced this bill that was supposed to deal with all of that, and then in committee, um, there had previously been um, a part of the bill that specifically said, um, "Let's not. This does not impact user-generated content." Okay. And a liberal MP amended the bill to remove this section. And that's where everybody all of a sudden, mm. on almost unanimously, completely lost their mind. Because, <laughs> you know, the narrative started to become like, are they going to regulate my cat videos? Yeah. 
Um, right. And it, it, it's a completely fair point. Um, right. At, at what point does the, the content um, that's being uploaded to these sites become um, user generated? I mean, right. What point does it become kind of subject to these CanCon rules? And what point does it not? And then mm -hmm. what are all of the other kind of slippery slope parts that come <laughs> out of that? Is there going to be some, you know, faceless, nameless bureaucrat sitting in an office in Ottawa who's mm -hmm. going through every single YouTube upload? Yeah. And deciding whether it's, you know, it meets the government of the day's ethical standards for, right. for what, what Canadians are allowed to view. So it's a completely mm -hmm. ridiculous um, sure. um, bill. Um, I think the, the government didn't intend, um, it's, it's kind of gotten a little bit out of control and spiraled faster than the government could control it. Yeah. They've clearly got a very radical minister who's responsible for this. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, I don't think that it, the bill will be able to be passed in its current iteration. Right. Okay. Well, that's good. Um, cause yeah, in the, in this, like it made news in the U S and that doesn't happen very often like, <laughs> in Canada. It was pretty much Rob Ford doing crack cocaine, Doug Ford, uh, increasing police powers and this, right. And two of the three are in the last year. Um, so it's, yeah, yeah, I know it's uh, it was it's it's a bit big big story and um, like listen every every country around the world is trying to figure out what, as we discuss what the heck to do with the internet yeah um, and I think that there's probably you know lots of good ideas that are coming from the left and lots of good ideas that are coming from the right mm -hmm. um, but what the government was trying to do to bring YouTube and Spotify and Netflix and to treat them like broadcasters like AM FM radio and cable right. TV news. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, yeah. Uh, anybody who knows the internet knows that that'll never work. <laughs> it's just, you know, laws being passed about the internet by people who don't seem to actually understand what the internet is. Yeah. That's a big problem. And I think that's a, a much larger issue. I think there's a generational misunderstanding or, um, patronizing or how is it um it's almost like ah don't worry we, we know best it'll work ah we've been here before ah it's fine but it's yeah. not it's a i feel like there's a, a certain set of leaders or, or people in positions of authority that are older now i would say boomers that are may have overstayed their welcome um but have been so used to doing things in such a prescribed manner for decades that they can't even see that something new is happening that needs to be addressed in a different way. And I think that's pervasive. I don't think that's amongst politicians only or, you know, legislators, whatever it is. I think academia, it's a gigantic problem. I really felt that at the end of my uh, grad school teaching, it was just certain, like certain discoveries are just happening so fast and in like disparate fields, but they relate to one another. And people that have done things a certain way for so long aren't used to to navigating a, like a topology that's ever changing. And I think that's sort of a, a concept we need to prepare for in the next iterations of these institutions because what we have just won't do. Yeah. 
Agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah. So I guess that that's one of the areas where, um, it kind of exemplified where the, my new centrist right perspective is, (laughs) is going. Um, it's just like, uh, it seems again, it was sort of a liberal leaning minister that was being irresponsible and not really thinking through the full severity of their actions or the decisions. And, um, and again, whenever I see someone just say, oh, it's okay, or trust me, or whatever, that's exactly the time not to. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not that old yet. I'm 28 now. Um, but I'm finding myself having to put my neck out and really be confrontational with people that are like much my elder or superior um, in, in many cases to say like, I'm sorry, but like, it's not good enough. It's, it's not going to cut it. And, you know, you might think I'm, I'm just being, I'm just exaggerating, but I still have to act in what I see. Like, I think our generation has knowledge that people older than us don't. I think that's really strange. I think it's, and it's our responsibility to educate those people and, and to make these decisions. So I almost feel like our generation has to grow up fast really fast right now because we're sort of that bridge between the boomers who still don't really get what the internet is but you know we were non-internet native and then we adopted the internet and then we have to translate that way of life to the internet native kids in gen z who seem to perhaps not have solid footing and no one's really giving them solid information so they get pulled in all different directions um I'm not sure how to fix that, but to me, it, it seems like uh, we got to get you. We got to get you to run for office there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for me, it's uh, there's it starts from like personal responsibility. If I see something, say something, and then try and have like all of the people I associate with hopefully adopt a similar stance and then build out from there. That's the only way I can see it um, happening. But I feel like there needs to be a lot of sort of uh, grassroots adoption of responsibility and action happening, especially from our, our millennial folk these days. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you are in there and being involved um, in politics as we speak um, to at least bring that perspective, um, even if it is leaning conservative most of the time, um, but from the younger generation. So kudos. Um, so you're talking about in high school, you're starting to get involved with the, the local conservative party. Um, I remember we don't really have to talk about it too much, but I just want to use this as a stepping stone onto what university you went to, why, and what program. But I do remember sort of at the end of our high school, we had a very eccentric teacher in geography that gave us an assignment that was basically gave us like a map of uh, territory where there's a bunch of different cultural cultural tribes living. These were abstract names and territories. It was just you know the the widgets and the and the squeeze. Those are two tribes or whatever. I mean, I'm just making it up. But the point was that um, you had to come up with the best plan you could 
on how these different tribes could live peacefully amongst each other spread across this geographical landscape. And um, I think it was like a relatively long assignment, but to me, that was one of the best exercises I've had ever. The thought process that went through it. And I can't remember how it happened, but we ended up partnering on it. I don't know if we chose that or if our teacher chose it, but I remember it worked really well because we took opposing points of view. You know, that was high school, so I was still very liberal at that point. And you were standing your ground from the conservative side. And, you know, generally we agree on, on the, the mid parts, like the functional of being a human, you know, let people generally do what they want, but people need social protection, whatever. But we'd, every issue that came up, we'd battle it out, <laughs> even if it was small. But because we were coming from opposite perspectives where we landed in the end, respectfully, seemed to be like right down the middle and what it needed to be. And I think we ended up getting the highest mark on that class. And that, to me, that was, it was almost like captured in a capsule, like time moves, stood still for a little while while we were working on it. It was just so intense for me, but I loved it. I hate to break it to you, but I don't remember this assignment in the slightest. You don't remember it at all? I'm glad you had a positive experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I might interview one of the, our other classmates from that because I've talked to him recently and he remembers it, Jared Windover. Um, but he's now a, a programmer. He works at Square. Um, but he said that was his most valuable learning experience in high school as well, but from a different perspective. I think he got second highest, um, but his strategy was to create an algorithmic approach. Um, and he couldn't quite do it in high school. He didn't have the tools, but he like went into a degree in mathematics that was centered around these algorithms that could, you know, take input of a whole bunch of variables and then come up with like a, a structured solution. Um, so it's just interesting that it kind of inspired that, but it's interesting. You don't remember cause we did battle it out. And I remember you wrote it up in the end. I was, uh, I was a bit of a contrarian back in the day. So I would have yeah. debated you on probably any subject. <laughs> yeah. But I just remember like warning you ahead of time, like, I'm going to disagree with you and I hope that's okay. And you're like, yeah, sure. Whatever. But we went at it and I think it got a little heated at times, but both us understanding that, um, we were trying to be in contrast to the others and, and meet in the middle. Um, so whether you remember it or not, for me, it was uh, a huge learning experience. But what I took away from it was that it's always valuable to uh, engage with a different perspective because you're probably going to take something away from it. And that's what really is a shame um, that I'm seeing with this cancel culture. It's not giving people the opportunity to grow, to learn from each other. Because that's what happens when you disagree with someone in my opinion, what you should do is trying to figure out why you disagree because there's probably a reason. And when you figure out why that is, you'll both learn from it. You'll, you'll both learn something about yourself. So I've always tried to take that perspective, but you really helped me with that because, uh, you know, I guess you probably had the most differing views for me at the time. And that was exactly the person I wanted to engage with, um, especially because you're so brilliant and um, respectful as well. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so around that time, you're a contrarian, but 
you know, you still had to get a degree if they were going to let you work in politics, right? So um, how are you thinking about applying to university? Were you taking a political stance? Where'd you go? What program? That kind of thing. So I was obviously, as we went over, was politics obsessed. Knew I wanted to work in politics. Yeah. Um, didn't really know what working in politics probably meant, but I knew I wanted to work in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I obviously applied for a lot of political science programs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also at the same time applied for a degree in international development at the University of Waterloo. Okay. Um, and um, I ended up actually at the end of the day going into international development um, at the University of Waterloo. And what interested me about the, the, the program was um, it was very multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. So it was based out of the Faculty of Environment. So you learned, did environmental courses, obviously, geography courses, um, but you also were required to take economics and you were required to take um, history and you were required to take some more practical courses like bookkeeping and, and accounting. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was very multidisciplinary. And I, I figured, you know, I don't know if, uh, if, if working in politics requires a political science degree. I don't right. think it does. Yeah. Um, I bet there's a lot of people uh, applying to work in politics who have political science degrees. So I'll try right. something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the other cool thing about the degree was um, it was three years in class education. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fourth year was kind of like a bit of a um, co-op term where you worked abroad. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up in my fourth year um, going to Vietnam, um, wow. living in Vietnam for nine <laughs> months, um, and working for uh, a, a local, like non-governmental um, organization doing development work in Vietnam. So mm-hmm. got me out of the lecture halls, which I which I also found very, uh, very uh, um, enticing of a for a degree as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's a crazy program. I remember when you went went off. I don't know if I could have done it at that age. To go somewhere so foreign and like an underdeveloped area, not know how to speak the language with very few people that you know, and just, you know, <laughs> last it out. Like <laughs> it, no, it was it was uh, certainly a little bit scary at the time, but it it was a, a, a great experience that I wouldn't trade for trade for anything. Um, it really teaches you how to to adapt um, and uh, get out of your comfort zone. So um, awesome experience. Yeah. Like, is there any one specific thing you could point to that um, the Vietnamese where you were locally just differed from Canadians, like some sort of perspective or um or problem, I guess, that they had to wrestle with that we just don't even think of. Something where you could learn from. It's hard for me to pick pick one thing. Um, mm. The whole, everything is different. Like culturally, we are not the same in any way, shape or form. <laughs> um, everything from, you know, your commute to work is different to your, right. the structure of your work day is different. Okay. Um, I'm still amazed they, they have their lunch and then they have like a two hour nap after the lunch. They do the CS the office okay. just naps. Um, <laughs> everything from the you know, the sightseeing and the way that they 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 showcase their history and, and their their 
their museums and such is different. Like there's, there's not one thing that I could probably hone in on and, 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 and uh, highlight as an example. Do you think that what we do is better in those cases? Do we have a better workday structure? Do we have a better <laughs> way of showcasing our history? Or is it just different? Could we learn from them in some ways? Yeah, I, I'm not one to say anybody's, I guess, culture's better. Um, right. On the, the history side, I guess, um, you know, this, this, this is an interesting enough little tidbit. Like, so they, in Hanoi, there's, um, uh, it's called the, it's colloquially referred to as the Hanoi Hilton. Um, you've probably okay. heard about it. It's like nope. where they kept the American prisoners of war during the Vietnamese war. John McCain famously saved the uh, state there. Okay. Um, um, so, um, it, it is now turned into a museum. Um, <laughs> so, um, the first three quarters of the museums doesn't mention at all um, the most famous probably component of the Hanoi Hilton, which is the American element. Yeah. Um, the first three quarters of it are all devoted to how the French pre-American uh, Vietnam War uh, used to treat um, the Vietnamese and how they used to keep them captive there. Mm -hmm. And then the last quarter of the museum um, is devoted to like pictures and photographs of how great they treated the American captives <laughs> okay. that's just an interesting little um i guess um tidbit about how um there's a difference between you know western western countries showcase their um, yeah. their, their histories in, in museum format versus uh, a communist country in, in southeast asia right and it, you know that kind of sounds like relating to the old adage like the history is written by the winners right? it's always going to be biased to whatever outcome the person writing it preferred um like, yeah, I'm wondering what it would look like if we we could reconcile everyone's history books and find out what was the core truth and how different it was from, from what we think. But uh, yeah, I, I, it, 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 I guess it comes down to um, whether you believe things are black and white or if you think things are a little bit gray and nuanced, right? Right. Yeah. And for sure, I'm I live in the nuance. That's where the magic happens. Black and white is just where we push it out, you know, in the moment to serve a point of view, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I have to travel more because I, I know a little bit about European history, but Asian, I have no idea. Um, I know a little bit about like Iranian and Persian history through my dad, which is always really interesting because he... They're so ancient, right? Like what he learned in history class was what happened like 4,000 years ago because <laughs> Persia was a thing and had a king and a very structured society, right? Whereas in Canada, I remember learning a lot about like indigenous people and the types of huts they, they had and like the framework of the stories that they told each other and like the specific flora or fauna that grew in that region. And to me, it got, it was like, very into like the minutia of describing a very shallow amount of history. And so, you know, like and it just no offense, but just didn't really captivate me. What was captivating to me is to hear, you know, like, you know, the Persian empire conquered Egypt and, you know, this 
King Cyrus was the first to allow anyone to practice their religion, but under a common monarch. And that sort of, that led to the, the Cyrus cylinder, um, a mixing of cultures that the world had never seen. And, you know, just amazing scientific and philosophical flourishing um, in the nations that um, came out of it. Um, so that, you know, it's useful to, to have historical perspective worldwide because I think, um, at least in Canada, it felt like to me that, um, it, you know, history was focused on Canadians and they just weren't a part of world history for, you know, the most of our human history. Don't sleep on Canadian history, though. There's lots of really interesting stuff, uh, stuff in uh, the Canadian history textbooks, though. Yeah? Like what? Vimy Ridge? <laughs> Normandy? Yeah. That's a world war. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's got spots for that. Um, the settling of North America. Sure. The birth yeah. of the greatest democracy in the world, Canada. <laughs> Look at me. I'm just I'm just bullish on Canada. Right? I'm just bullish on Canada. <sighs> That's good. Um, again, a perspective I don't know if I share completely. I love Canada, great place, but there are some real limitations that seem to not jive with my personality. Um, big reason why I'm here. Um, but we can agree to disagree. Some aspects. Um. Yeah. So. You're finishing up your program in international development. By the end of it, were you thinking you had a shot at a political career? Had you been working at a more, I don't know, I don't know how to say it, like mature level in the political parties at all during college? So I was in, uh, um, so it was my last year of university, fourth year. I'm in Vietnam. I was in, uh, hotel room in uh, uh, Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon, mm -hmm. uh, New Year's Eve, um, Vietnamese New Year's Eve. And I did an interview uh, from Vietnam over Skype for an internship at Queens Park. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Lucky enough, uh, I got hired from that interview, probably wow. because they just thought it was bizarre they were interviewing a guy in Vietnam. Um, <laughs> but either way, um, That'll make you, you know, out. I was lucky enough to be one of the select few who was hired for this internship. Um, very few were hired that year because there was kind of like a bit of a leadership change underway. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the rest, they say, is history. I don't know what I would yeah. be doing if I probably didn't get that inter internship. Um, True. Um, I, I might, my career trajectory might have looked very different, but I was extremely fortunate. And pretty much a week, uh, I landed, I think, in Canada on a, on a, back in Canada on like a Friday. And I was working at Queen's Park that next Monday. Wow, I, I didn't even realize it was that quick of a turnaround. Yeah, I don't know where I was doing my own thing, head in the clouds. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. So, are you still good on time for a bit? Yeah, I've got okay. I've got nothing but time over here. <laughs> um, if you want to keep talking about how great I am, I'm happy to happy to share. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'll continue to 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 say that you're one of my brightest friends, Simon, and it uh, <laughs> it always brings me great joy to hear your perspectives because I can't come up with them um, from within myself. So I need you so I can keep learning to grow. Um, so uh, starting at Queens Park, what's that like? Like, are you bottom of the totem pole? Do 
You have to do everyone's bidding. Were there a select few people that saw something in you that let you have some independence? What was that like? So obviously bottom of the totem pole, like I was expected to basically grab coffee if I was asked, right? Um, yeah. But everything in politics is uh, like, obviously, you know, work ethic and skill play a massive part, but timing's also a, mm -hmm. a big component of it. Yeah. Um, so I got hired, um, trying to make sure I've got my timelines right, but it must've been maybe two to three weeks if I'm, if I'm guessing, um, before a new leader was elected. Um, so right. I technically started working um, at Queens Park under in the office of the uh, the interim leader of the party. Mm -hmm. um, so um, it would have been it was a, a very, you know, the interim leader of the party generally keeps a, a more bare bones kind of skeleton staff. Right. Um, so that they can let the new leader, whoever gets elected, mm -hmm. the opportunity to kind of bring in their own people and shape the office, you know, in the in the way that they they prefer. Um, right. So, um, very, you know, um, tight, small staff that I, I kind of started under, mm -hmm. um, got to know them well because the staff was so small. I did get the opportunity pretty quickly to do some things that normal interns probably wouldn't have, yeah. you know, writing, writing some speaking remarks that probably would have went to a more senior person previously, mm -hmm. um, you know, issues, notes that were probably a bit senior for what an intern typically would do. And I, yeah. You know, I, t I jumped at every opportunity I possibly could at that time because I knew this is what I wanted to do. And, mm -hmm. you know, went. Uh, I was probably that annoying kid that was always like, do you have more work to do? Do you have more <laughs> work to do? Yeah. Um, but, you know, any anything that was, was available to, to sink my teeth into, I, I, I did. Um, mm -hmm. And then a new leader, um, the new leader was elected and, um, you know, he, lucky enough, he kept most of the, the old staff on. Mm -hmm. um they uh they continued to let me you know develop my skills and stuff like that and the rest is history and i just kept kept working hard and um and 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 putting everything i had into the work that i was afforded the opportunity to do and i eventually was able to rise the ranks from there yeah so that was um that was in the campaign that got doug ford elected to premier of ontario that, <laughs> that one so i uh Prior to Doug Ford getting elected premier, I would have been at Queens Park for about three years. Okay. And in those three years, I technically would have worked for four different Ontario PC party leaders. <laughs> wow. Um, I didn't realize a, it was a bit of a tumultuous time. Yeah, they weren't doing so well, huh? Well, yeah, there was I I uh I worked for the interim leader, then the new leader was elected, he resigned. Um, there was another interim leader. Um, there was this, uh, you know, a very uh, rushed leadership process. Um, Doug Ford was elected. Um, I went um, and worked on Doug Ford's campaign. Then he went mm -hmm. into the premier's office. That was pretty much yeah. the, the Coles notes of the sequences of events. Are you able to say why it was so tumultuous at the time? Well, it was, it was, it was um, unprecedented. Um, so we were up significantly in the polls um in about january 2018 okay. um our leader resigned um there was lots of you know um reasons for that um we had a probably the quickest leadership race um in political party history in canada i haven't fact checked that but i would imagine mm -hmm. that it was it was pulled together very quickly and then we yeah. had to get into uh um 
it takes planning an election campaign is years of work and we had okay. to pull together an election campaign apparatus in a few months um oh my goodness so it was it was uh a crazy time but it was also a lot of fun and and a, yeah. a, a, a incredible opportunity yeah so you were like thrown in the fire and it was sink or swim but if you make it out you're going to be so much more capable than when you started right yeah which is what happened you became a professional out of it right um so okay so can we talk about doug ford a little bit 100 percent. um so for those that know um doug ford is from ontario in toronto the capital um and his brother rob ford was mayor prior to that um and made the news i think worldwide but it was it was crazy that it made news in the u.s that he was the famous crack smoking mayor of canada um which was a crazy story and he was in a downward spiral by that point but uh that didn't get him kicked out of the mayor's office did it right away um uh, yeah, like he, he stayed on as mayor until after the 2014 election. Um, yeah. But yeah, the council, the county, Toronto City Council at the time did vote to remove some of the authorities he had I see. Um, in the mayor's office. Yeah. Yeah. But I just found it such a fascinating story because it seemed to me like he was just the most charismatic person um, like in city council. And so he got elected because he was the most charismatic and he, he, it seemed that he got along at least early on when he wasn't spiraling um, with all the staffers and, and people around and and uh, so that kept up his popularity. Um, and it's just interesting that you know he probably took it too far into his freedoms, but um, there's something there. There's something about him that was really alluring. Well, yeah, he he. Um obviously um will probably forever be known as the crack smoking mayor um right that's probably a simplistic kind of for sure analysis of them so he represented uh etobicoke um okay. so for people etobicoke north so for people who don't uh know toronto very well it's a suburban kind of um part of the the, the city um mm -hmm. And he kind of made his original reputation um, on city council um, before he was mayor as the guy who, you know, fought the, the was the only guy on city council kind of voting against the uh, awarding of new perks and luxuries for politicians. Ah. He has one very viral video that happened before he was mayor where he was, you know, opened up his wallet and went through kind of all of the cards that counselors get with free zoo admission and free, uh, free parking and free TTC. And he says, this is count costing council kind of millions and millions of dollars. And I'm the only guy that's fighting against it. Mm. And then the second part that he was really well known for was he gave out his phone number um, to everybody. Wow. That's so crazy. So he, uh, <laughs> He, uh, like I didn't, I never, never worked for Rob Ford. I only worked for right. his brother, but he yeah. gave out a cell phone number to anyone. And a lot of what a, a counselor does is, is very, you know, constituency work focused, right? It's the people call up their counselor's office and they say, go fix, uh, I've got, you know, a pothole on my road. That's right. an issue, right? 
mm-hmm. um, or you know the, the piping, the water in my my Toronto Toronto community housing um, building is down. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know they typically with the other counselors, you'd call their office and you know they'd probably add you to a list and they'd get to it in two weeks and. You know, the counselor would never show up and actually do the work himself. But with Rob Ford, you'd call his cell phone. <laughs> he'd show up personally, probably dragging some city bureaucrat with him to the to the project. He got yeah. it done. Yeah. And so he originally started doing it just kind of in his his the area of the city that he represented. But mm-hmm. pretty soon, you know, he started handing out his cell phone number to people outside of his his kind of wow. his kind of ward and ticked yeah. off. Every single counselor because he was starting doing to do their work, right? And that's kind of where he developed his reputation. And that's why that's why yeah. people love yeah. him. And that's right. kind of that momentum that that um kind of pushed him into the mayor's office, obviously amongst other things. Um yeah. but and that's why a lot of people, despite you know, the 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 crack scandal that everybody talks about, they still love mm-hmm. him to death because he was kind right. of the the people's politician is what they right. they uh, they referred to him as. He yeah, wasn't he, uh, a slick, a slick kind of usual politician who gave you talking points. He was straight right. up and told it like it was. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of before his time, almost in in some respects, right? Um, a man of the people, you know. He'll he'll talk to you and he'll smoke crack with you. He'll do it all. Um, but the only reason I bring that up is because the Ford family name sort of had some sort of momentum in the Toronto Ontario area. That that Doug was able to capitalize on and then you know carry it further. Um, so yeah, I think I think I remember you were working for someone. Yeah, you were there. You were there when Doug got elected, and you weren't necessarily expecting him to win, right? Um, or he wasn't. It, no, it, it, he wasn't it was the a, favorite. It was a like a. Four people ended up running for the leadership, okay. um, and we always knew it was going to be a close race. Okay, and none of us who were kind of in the office left over mm-hmm. um, knew whether any of us would be able to keep our jobs. Right, like new leader, they've got their own people. Right. Um, so that was the biggest thing on everybody's mind was like, whoever okay. wins, is it going to be? Is it going to be like? Are they going to keep me on? So it's you mm-hmm. know it's a very stressful time. Yeah, um, specifically because you'd worked the last three years before that all for the goal of of winning the next election and hopefully mm-hmm. working in government. Um, yeah, only for there to all of a sudden be all this 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 craziness and you're you're unsure about your future and if you'll even be able to be involved in the next campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you weren't really involved in him getting elected, right? You were just no, I, I didn't work on his uh, his his leadership campaign. Um, yeah. We were kind of anybody who was in the independent leader's office had to be kind of neutral through that process. I see. Yeah, that'd be really weird. You're just watching it play out, kind of have yeah. to sit on your hands. Um, okay, so when did you get the news that you weren't indeed going to lose your job and that you could continue working on? Yeah, well, well, as as I said before, like planning an election campaign takes takes years worth of planning, and we only had a few months. Um, so it happened very quickly. They just realized got, you know, good people there who yeah. know the issues, know the files, have kind of lived and breathed mm-hmm. everything Ontario politics for the last little while. And yeah, let's just keep moving forward with a lot of the same, pe- like obviously new people were brought in and you know, you would have had new bosses and stuff like that, but 
um, you know, there was the same core that I'd worked with before got to, got to stick around and we all got to work on the next campaign. And most of us ended up going into government as well. Nice. Nice. So then, so then how long were you working on the campaign until election? It was like eight months or something. So he would have been elected leader in March. Um, and the election would have been in June. So that's three months. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember it. I, I guess I didn't care enough. <laughs> um, wow, that is ridiculously quick. Um, okay, could you sort of maybe talk through a bit of what was happening in those three months? Like, who are you up against in with the liberals? What did you think your chances were? What was your strategy, if you can say? Yeah, so... We were running against, like the liberals were in government. Um, the liberals had been in government for 15 years um, and they had, um, after those 15 years, they'd taken a few bruises, a few lumps along yeah. the way. Yeah. Um, and the premier at the time, um, her name was Kathleen Wynne, um, was like, mm. historically unpopular. Right. Um, and we, for that entire kind of, prior to Doug Ford being elected, but like we had been leading in the polls, our party for a very long time. Is that because she's a woman? Because I heard... Uh People just don't like female politicians. They always pull, pull over. You know, people people have have like written about that a lot. I I, mm. I don't necessarily buy it as much. I think it was just she had to wear the baggage of a lot of stuff. Yeah, um, you know, from her predecessor and a lot of she made a lot of mistakes of her own along the way. Mm -hmm. um, people just you know they they were ready. It's the way as we said, politics is cyclical. People were ready yeah. for a change, right? Right. And, People talk about change elections. It was a change election. Um, yeah, um, they were ready for for something new, and we had been leading, um, obviously, for like the couple of years leading up to the campaign. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so halfway through um, the campaign, people kind of started saying, well, "Let's take a little peek at the NDP. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll consider voting NDP." Um, yeah. So we, you know, had to change approaches a bit during the campaign to kind of change our attacks from the liberals to the NDP. But um, for the most part, I don't think there was too many people out there that weren't expecting PCs um, or Doug Ford to win. Okay. So you had momentum on your side and you were just trying to, to ride the wave and not. You know, yeah. I mean, I make like, any huge mistakes to say it's it? momentum. I don't know if that's, we, we just, people were ready for, ready for a new government and, you know, we were the, 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 the ones that I guess they, they looked to in that. Um, there's lots of different reasons for that. Um, you know, affordability was a big, big issue. Um, uh, Ontario had the highest hydro rates in North America, um, largely okay. due to kind of messes that um, the liberals had created over the past 15 years. We were the ones with the kind of strongest message on that. Um, you know, we, there was affordability was a big issue. There was a lot of like corruption scandals that had existed in the previous government. People mm -hmm. generally trust conservatives more than other parties when it comes to cleaning up kind of ethics issues. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was, you know, it was a change election and the PCs were the, the ones who were able to capitalize on that. We were the ones that are able to capitalize on that. Right. Right. Um, okay. So, you you kind of had like a promotion though along that election cycle, didn't you? Like, were you what what was your title? I guess during that during the campaign. Yeah. 
So going into the campaign, um, I was um, press secretary. Okay. Um, in the campaign, titles weren't like less, they're less of a thing. Um, okay. But I handled a lot of media, uh, which is something that I was doing before and a lot of kind of rapid response kind of um, writing and, and, and research and stuff like that. So is that like social media media or responding to news outlets or for the, the media? Yeah. Um, that would have been like journalists and stuff like that. Journalists. Okay. Um, but also I, I, I don't Campaigns are very all hands on deck. Everybody right. kind of chips in on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, they call, they call kind of the nerve system of the, the campaign, a war room. Um, you've probably heard right. that term before. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I would have been in the war room doing media, mm-hmm. anything communications related really. Okay. Okay. So you were the, the silver tongue. Silver tongue. I don't know if I've heard that one before. <laughs> uh, it's just smooth talker. <laughs> Nobody's ever called me a smooth talker. No. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Get that. I just know that because my dad's a used car salesman, right? So that's what people call him. Not necessarily in a good way, but there's useful aspects. But um, okay. So you did your job, right? You got this guy elected change happened um but it was pretty soon after that you were making a change uh in your career as well right or trying to you didn't stay uh in the ontario parliament for all that so i worked for i worked for um doug ford as premier in his role as premier for for about a year um i think a little bit more than a year Mm -hmm. um as his director of media relations okay um so my job was um again dealing with reporters and the press and you know responding to all of the stuff our um, opponents were saying in in regards (laughs) to issues and stuff like that yeah Um, so then after about a year there i went and uh, i went and worked uh i switched uh from ontario politics to federal politics um i'd spent a good amount of time at queen's park i was ready to try something new um Mm -hmm. so i went uh, and worked uh, uh joined the federal conservative leader's office Right. Um, and that was that was a big uphill battle, right? Because uh, what was it? The conservatives were taking a hit around that time federally. Is that true? Well, it was it was a, it was a bit of a different situation in the sense that, like, for a lot of the time in my like, time in Ontario politics, we were winning. Right. Yes. Yeah. We were we were leading in the polls. Um, as we said, timing is a lot of it. Timing was timing was good. Um, federally, um, you know, Justin Trudeau had certainly taken a few, a few, um, so Justin Trudeau is the prime minister, um, a few lumps, um, but he was still generally pretty popular mm-hmm. and he had a, uh, majority government, um, yeah. majority governments generally are hard. They don't lose the first time around. Yeah. Um, so I guess, I guess from that sense, it was a bit of a, bit of a, um, more of an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like what? Were you expecting to take it or you just wanted to make your contribution and see if you could? Um, was I expecting to take it? Um, no, yeah. um, okay. I don't. You're reasonable. No. Um, <laughs> knew it was going to, knew it was going to be a challenge, but yeah. I, I certainly thought that we had a, had a, a chance. Challenge. Yeah. Um, don't want to say I, I thought it was hopeless and I was just going there for yeah. you know, shits and giggles. Um, but no, it was, I knew it was going to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And so, you know, we know how that played out. Justin stayed. Um, he ended up with a minority government. Is that what happened? Yeah, so yeah. we knocked the majority down to a minority. Um, yeah. Got more votes. We got more votes than him. Um, uh, oh, yeah? The uh, more people voted for the Conservative Party than the Liberal Party, but that's not the way the system works. So Right, because NDP made a big splash that year, right? Well, it, it, we vote based off, the, the government gets formed based off of how many members of parliament you elect rather than how many votes you get. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So you're saying the, the places where you got seats, you probably got a lot of votes. And yeah. so, um, yeah, you had more votes than seats proportionally or something like that, right? Just trying to say, I'm just trying to, to point out that it wasn't a, a, a complete loss, all right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, like, once the results came in, did you stick around there or you made your next transition pretty soon after that as well? Um, election would have been in October. Um, so I would have left five, five months after that. So I stuck around for a bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as with um, everything in politics, um, there's always lots of, you know, behind the scenes politicking and, and fighting and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there was... Um, a lot, a large debate within the party if the the leader that I worked for should be the person who runs in the next election campaign. There's a lot of shenanigans that go along with with that. Yeah. Um. So I was around for kind of all of the, the shuffling behind the scenes on that, and then and in yeah. the end, the leader, the leader, um, he made his own decision and said, "I'll I'll step down." Um. Mm -hmm. So, um. Once he did that, that was when I started kind of kind of thinking about next steps. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, how did you find your experience? That's not what I want to ask. How are the, how is the environment, how are the people in the federal government different than provincial? Or were they not? Were they generally the same? Well, I think a lot of the, the party politics side of things is a very small world. Right. Mm -hmm. um, there are, you know, I know most people who have have worked in conservative politics in this country um, yeah. over the last, you know, five years or so, just because you kind of mm -hmm. overlap and you just cross paths with them a lot. Yeah. So, you know, the personalities, like at least internally, weren't, you know, they're not that, they're not that much different um, based mm -hmm. off of the, the level of government. Um, mm -hmm. Big differences would be the, the issues you're dealing with are completely different. Um, right. Um, provincial governments deal with their, their responsibilities are like healthcare, education, um, you know, a lot of transportation stuff, um, you know, federally, those are stuff that, you know, touches people's day-to-day -day lives a lot. Everybody goes, has yeah. kids that goes to school. Everybody knows somebody yeah. who's been through the healthcare system. Federally, the issues that you're talking about, you know, there's still like lots of stuff that impacts people's day-to-day -day lives in terms of like taxes and, mm -hmm. and, and and services from government. But you're also talking about foreign affairs and right. you're also talking about, yeah. um, um, you know, as we went over Bill C-10 and like the issues, the mm -hmm. issue sets are just completely different. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, you know, having spent five years or so immersing myself in Ontario political issues, I had to, mm -hmm. you know, um, acquaint myself with some new issues. Yeah. Um, the the media cycle is very different in Ottawa. Um, there's just a lot more a lot more 
reporters. Um, okay. Yeah, it makes uh, sense. You know, the Queens Park Press Galleries. A lot, it's probably, you know, I, I would wager maybe 15, 15 strong at this point in time. Uh, been declining <laughs> yeah. a lot over the last little bit. Yeah. Um, the Federal Gallery, you're dealing with over 100 reporters, right? And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. some of them only deal with specific, specific, you know, very technical issues. So that, that was a, a bit of a difference. Um, mm -hmm. Those are the two that immediately come to mind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess I wouldn't have even thought of that being the main difference. But it, yeah, another another interesting difference. Another different interesting uh, difference as well is just you're obviously one year in Toronto. Um, mm -hmm. um, yeah, working in provincial politics, you're based in Toronto. Working in federal politics, you're based in Ottawa. Yeah, um, the cities are just incredibly different. Yeah, um, like Toronto, you know, you're in your little bubble when you're on the legislature. Okay, as soon as you step off the legislature. You're not in that bubble anymore. You're in, mm -hmm. you know, the biggest city in Canada. Yeah. Um, when you go to the a restaurant or a bar after work, you're not bumping into other people who work in politics necessarily, or yeah. reporters, or you know, um, yeah. bureaucrats or whatever. But in Ottawa, mm -hmm. everybody is involved with the apparatuses of government. So as soon as you leave, leave Parliament Hill and you go to the, go to a bar, you're surrounded by diplomats, and you're surrounded <laughs> by reporters, and you're surrounded yeah. by bureaucrats, and it's. Yeah. It's, it, it's very much like, like they describe it as they, they call it the Ottawa bubble and it is like completely yeah. a bubble is like, if you're in downtown Ottawa, yeah. you are not within, you know, five meters away from, from somebody who is, is, is important in the decision maker in some respect. Yeah. Like, how did you feel about that? Did you prefer to be able to escape the bubble when you could, or, you know, they're just their own different beasts or. Yeah, they're just different. You know, every once in a while, you probably like to to go to the bar and have a few too many cocktails and not have to worry if you if what you're saying is being overheard. Um, yeah, but it's also cool to you know be at a restaurant in downtown Ottawa and look over your shoulder and see, oh, that's the finance minister over there, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that, that, sure. that's the stuff that happens. They both got their uh, they both got their uh, their moments. Yeah, for sure. Okay, and so once that all wrapped up, you got to you know, more carve your own path, right? With this consulting agency. Could you say maybe, um, uh, what was the impetus for, for starting the firm or joining the firm, how that played out? Yeah. So I, uh, as I said before, like my, my, the person who I was working for, the, the leader of the party at the time had decided he wasn't gonna, he was going to step down. Mm -hmm. Um, Unlike the previous leadership changes that I'd been involved with in the past, I knew that I was probably going to get shuffled out. Um, yeah. I was, you know, at that point in time, very senior within the office and the senior positions are the ones that get shuffled out the most. Mm -hmm. I'm shuffling around the kind of more junior yeah. people. Um, so I knew that, you know, at the end of the, the whenever the new leader was elected, that I would probably um, have to go find a new job anyway. Um, mm -hmm. An opportunity presented itself with people who I'd worked with um, uh, with Doug Ford, actually, um, previously, mm -hmm. um, they were starting a firm. They asked me to be a part of it. Um, mm -hmm. It was kind of a cool opportunity to be a part of a um, a business, kind of from the ground floor. Yeah, didn't know we would be uh, building the business in the middle of a global pandemic. But, Seriously, um, <laughs> that's kind of been a whole whole new uh, fun challenge. But you know, it's, yeah. it, it, it it was just a, the right opportunity at the right time. Um, I, you know, politics, uh, 
love it to death. Um, like working as a staffer, um, mm -hmm. but it's long, hard hours. Um, yeah. You know, I was regularly in the office at, at six in the morning or six 30 yeah. and answering yeah. emails at midnight. Um, you know, yeah. you always have to be tuned into what's happening. Um, so it's mm -hmm. nice to be able to sleep in a little bit longer and yeah. not have to, you know, frantically respond to emails at, at 10 30 PM if they come in late <laughs> at night and not have yeah. to go on Twitter every single minute to see that if there's any breaking news that we need to respond to. So it's nice from that yeah. perspective to have a little bit of a break. Yeah. Nice. So do you have uh, something that you guys are building towards specifically or you're um, sort of taking in the clientele that comes to you? Um, like are, are you focused on campaigns or what, what kind of issues do you talk, tackle? Um, so I'd say the major, a, a large portion of our clients are, are, uh, they come for, for government relations services. Um, okay. so they have, they have problems with government that they need fixed and we, we kind of help fix them. So it's like corporations that come to you. Yeah. A lot, like a lot of corporations and stuff that, you know, they've, they've got, you know, regulations that they, they want to see fixed or they're looking mm -hmm. for kind of government funding for a certain project they're working on. Mm -hmm. or the government's not letting them build something <laughs> or, or, or whatnot, right? Like there's yeah. a whole host of things that they could have be having issues with, but mm -hmm. you know, our experience is one, um, we know how government works. We know how things kind of get pushed through the system and mm -hmm. how, how decisions get made and how, you know, um, you can kind of shape that process. And also mm -hmm. we know the people who are making the decisions, um, right? Like we, we worked in Doug Ford government, for example, um, some mm -hmm. of my coworkers, have worked with, you know, the people who work in Alberta or Saskatchewan or BC. So mm -hmm. um, that, that's kind of the service offering we present. Nice. Wow. So you, you cover Canada wide then? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. So do you, do you plan on, do you think you'll be there for a while in this kind of capacity or, you know, if another election cycle comes through, you might hop on that wave. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really happy. Uh, where I am right now. So I don't see any changes anytime soon. Um, mm -hmm. uh, not saying I'd ever, never go back into government. Um, but I don't, I don't, I haven't been thinking about that in, any time, in the last little bit. So, yeah. Yeah. So does that mean you're less involved in sort of party politics? You're more on the sidelines or you still have friends and things that you're dealing with? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I, uh, um, still to stay on top of everything and talk to lots of people and, you know, people will often call up and ask for advice and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. I'm still a conservative party member. Yeah. Um, and I'm still going to, um, help elect conservative governments, um, in, uh, you know, provincially and federally. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just less of the, the day-to-day -day involvement in kind of the, the operations of the party or the, the, the political office. Yeah. Okay. So sort of controversial question. Um, do you have any idea what was going on when Doug Ford decided to announce an expansion to police powers, basically to be able to stop anyone, stop and frisk essentially being allowed um, for what? not wearing a mask or being out after a certain hour or something like that? It was more for like outdoor, outdoor gatherings. Um, 
So obviously Ontario at that time was, um, I guess we still kind of are in the midst of like a third wave of the, of the pandemic, as they're saying. Mm-hmm. And all of the advice that, you know, um, I guess the government had been receiving, they're receiving advice from lots of different groups, um, lots of different doctors. Okay. Uh, there's hundreds of doctors out there who all have their kind of own, uh, own opinion on what the best way to handle the pandemic is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the advice that they would have been provided was, um, uh, we need to limit mobility and keep people at home. I guess kind of the same advice that, you know, the, the government's been dishing out since the beginning. Um, so they, uh, issued a mandatory stay at home order. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was kind of, I think, pushback in the sense that, you know, people were still gathering and right. how do you enforce a mandatory stay at home order, um, without, I guess, giving, um, giving, police additional authorities um, to be able to ask people questions about why they're leaving the house. Right. Um, so that was kind of, I think the logic behind it. Um, mm-hmm. There was obviously an immediate, <laughs> immediate backlash where yep. people were like, hold up. We live in Ontario here. Yep. Um, and uh, that's, uh, we don't want to live in martial law. Um, yeah. But I think one of D- Doug Ford's better skills as a politician um, is admitting when he's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and admitting he's made a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. And to his credit, he was pretty quick to say, all right, we, we got the message loud and clear. Yeah. Um, we will not be moving forward with these new kind of uh, police powers to enforce uh, enforce the, the stay-at-home order. Yeah, it was like within a day or two, but an internet that's like years, you know, that had already <laughs> spread and went viral and you know, yeah, Amer- Americans were saying, oh, Canadians, we got to invade and take over because we got to rescue you from a police state. And I'm just like, what is going on? This is uh, I'm sure if Doug Ford was looking back on it now, he'd probably say really boned that one up. <laughs> yeah. He was he was quick to correct course. And, yeah. uh, um, you know, mm-hmm. when in, in, in a time of COVID, there's no kind of playbook for right. government. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, my one year in government, you didn't make decisions, um, in the morning and announce them in the afternoon. Um, you worked on the policies over the course of weeks, sometimes mm-hmm. months, sometimes years. Mm-hmm. Um, now the government is making, you know, decisions at the drop of the hat out of necessity. Um, oh yeah. And there's going to be some, you know, fuck ups along the way. Uh, yep. that's just the nature of government is not built to respond quickly to, for sure. Um, global events like uh, like COVID. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, but, you know, this this kind of brings up a larger perspective that has been highlighted by COVID, um, which is sort of like a question of what is the appropriate level of power that a government should have? And how well is that articulated to the people that are under the rule of that government, I guess? Um, because generally Americans, you know, I'm speaking broad strokes, Americans, uh, would prefer less government, I think, than Canadians, or they, they put less power and control or decision-making into the government's hands. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say, um, yeah, I think that's probably a fairly good assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... 
you know, in the U.S., when there's sort of draconian measures trying to be implemented by governments, there tends to be outrage and outcry immediately and in vast swaths of the population. And in certain states, um, they just want their freedom. So regardless of what the government thinks is best, it can only be, um, you know, articulated to the people in a way that, that they accept it. And so the, the politicians have to be very careful in how they interact with the public and the, the public is in control in, in those cases. But then you see states like California, for instance, the really left-leaning states tend to have more of a perspective, I think, of like Canada that, you know, government needs to be there for social care. There's a bunch, there's a large proportion of our population that for whatever reason just can't take care of themselves properly right now and it should be okay to support them um, based on the excesses that, that other people have enjoyed and that's a cyclical process and it, it exists because you know everyone's going to have their ups and downs you want to be able to be helped up on your on your down um, and so when you're at your peak you might feel like you're being pulled down a little bit but it's a temporary thing and it's only a partial measure but when times are so extreme like COVID, uh, people's anxieties and fear can begin to rule. Um, and especially when a mob mentality can influence the government, that's when you start getting really haphazard, poorly made decisions. Um, I don't think there's a best way around it, but to me it seemed that the more left-leaning governments, at least in the Americas, haven't, um, probably shouldn't say haven't, um, they've moved towards increasing government power, basically, and enforcing a particular way of being. And for me, for someone that, you know, was generally okay with the government in Canada, I, you know, I thought maybe they should let capitalists roam a little more free. Um, for me, I really don't like the increased governmental decision-making. Um, and particularly for me, because I'm a biologist, I understand the science, and I'm being parroted a bunch of bullshit on a daily basis, and I'm not allowed to make decisions for myself. Um, so I'm wondering if you would agree that in extreme times like these, left-leaning governments impose greater governmental power, first of all, and then if you think, what do you think about that, I guess? Yeah, so um, generally speaking, yeah. I think left-leaning governments are way more apt to kind of step into people's day-to-day -day lives in what they would probably describe as, you know, the greater good. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, you know, inherent in their belief system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, COVID... COVID's kind of been an interesting little, you know, I guess we can look back on this, you know, five, 10 years from now, and I'm very interested to see what the, what the books say about it and, and how, how the history is told, but like, you know, the, the conservative governments um, in, in Canada have been just as quick to, to at times shut down or lock down the economy um, as some of, I guess, the more, the more left, left leaning governments. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, an NDP government in British Columbia mm -hmm. 
Um, so if you have people in the States listening, the NDP is the left-wing kind of often so described as socialist party. Right. And you've got a conservative government in, in, uh, in Ontario. Mm-hmm. If you were to put the two different provinces kind of um, lockdown approach on a map and ask you to identify which one was which, you'd be mm-hmm. surprised that the NDP government's actually been far more open and loose with the rules than the conservative right. government. Yeah. Um, so I think kind of COVID has, has thrown out the kind of playbook on that. And I think the, the conservative mm-hmm. parties were forced to be a lot more pragmatic and to compromise kind of some of their more um, inherent values uh, in yeah. order to contain the virus. Like listen, Doug Ford's a, a businessman. Um, yeah. That's kind of was his entire brand before COVID. Yeah, um, he was the guy that understood business because I'm a businessman, um, and he's been the one that shut down the businesses the most. And that's yeah. because Ontario is a unique province in the sense that we have our own kind of uh, demographic challenges and, and economic challenges for why COVID might spread a little bit quicker in Ontario. Um, so I think a lot of political parties have been forced to kind of play out, throw out the ideology and kind of the deep philosophy and stuff and just think about it from a practical perspective. Right. Um, and I would agree as well. But to me, the people I tend to um, want to listen to are those that, again, didn't pick ideology going in. They kind of were willing to buck the ideolo- ideology of whatever group they were in at, at the moment, issue by issue, if they felt it necessary. Um, so to me, it's it's really rare, first of all, for someone to be able to stand up to the crowd or the prevailing um, perspective. Uh, but it is incredibly necessary to have those people speak up, especially in distressing times. And um, I think it's a real shame that in combination with our current era of cancel culture, that it's exactly those people that can't speak up. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I think I think one of the more interesting things in terms of trends that I've at least seen in Canada um, is, listen, we're we're a, a Western democracy. Um, we elect our politicians. Um, we elect our politicians to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've seen um, in COVID has been kind of a transfer of the decision making process yeah. away from politicians um, towards bureaucrats and doctors. Um, like we have now in Canada, doctors trotting out and announcing that they've made decisions to shut down certain sectors of the economy. Um, and, you know, whether you agree or disagree with how, you know, Doug Ford in Ontario has handled the pandemic, right. you will have the opportunity to make that clear when you vote, go and vote in the ballot box, um, uh, I guess a year from now um, in 2022. Um, whether you agree or disagree with some of the more kind of outspoken critics of lockdowns um, that have existed in Ontario, um, you will have the opportunity to say that guy was a lunatic who, who compromised health and safety, or mm-hmm. that that guy was somebody who stood up for my charter rights and freedoms or whatever the, 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 mm-hmm. the language you want to use is, and I'm going to go vote accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of the system. It's, that's why democracy is so great. Um, so I think that that's, equally as concerning as this kind of transition away from the elected officials who are supposed to take the advice of the doctors, weigh the advice of the doctors. And I would argue, yes, they should certainly be more often than not listening to like, like taking Mm -hmm. the, accepting the advice of the doctors. Um, 
but you know, also taking the advice of the economists and small business community and everybody else, mm-hmm. um, them making decisions versus unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats who nobody heard of um, right. a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this will probably be the last main question I ask, um, but you said that this is the best part of, uh, of democracy, that you can vote to change things, right? Um, but unfortunately, also I've seen lately, uh, even before the pandemic, but it's really emboldened people now, um, I've seen a lot of people, particularly academics, um, at respectable institutions openly and outwardly claim that they're communist and that they think that's a good thing. There should be a communist revolution. Um, and that really, really concerns me because, you know, in academia, I had to work with these people, first of all. And uh, these are highly educated people in, in some respects, but just completely ignorant in many other respects. Um, but I think the general public doesn't understand that those two parts exist in the same individual. So the people that they're asking to do their science that, to inform on their decisions have these political leanings that are very extreme and not informed, well-informed in a way you would expect someone of that caliber of academic rigor um, to look at their own beliefs. Um, I don't know exactly why that's going on, but it seems that it's coming from the people out of anarchy that are saying, yeah, things are, there's a problem with what's being done now. But instead of electing someone different at the next election, burn everything down and the people take over and the mob rules. And that's better for everyone because then it's organically from the ground up and you don't have anyone imposing their power um, on the people unfairly. What would you say to that? Listen, I think universities and academia and the you know the 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 faculty lounges have always been home to some really kooky people with some really kooky ideas. Mm-hmm. I think you're probably very right that it's gotten a lot worse in the last last number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what uh, the reason behind that is. Um, it could just be that you know professors used to be the people who grew up in the, the 20s and the 30s and, and the 40s, um, people who lived with kind of, you know, through the Great Depression and, and, and the World Wars. Now the professors are starting to become people who grew up in the 60s and 70s, where it was kind of the whole new cultural revolution. And, you know, every level, they just keep educating more people who then grow up to be kind of the um, upper echelon of, of, of academia. Um, I think conservatives have done a particularly like, I mean, conservatives, not as a party, but as like kind of a a political ideology, um, a pretty poor job of kind of installing people who are right leaning into those kind of positions in academia. Yeah. People who typically um, are conservative end up probably going into backgrounds that are like in maybe uh, more technical skills, like Mm -hmm. business, um, law, um, engineering, um, those types of things. 
Whereas people who are like left wing, you know, they generally love to go for the careers in the art, they get those bachelor of arts degrees. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's, it's the, again, we, we discussed it earlier, the, 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 the wokeness that's starting to become more pervasive across society. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Marxism, Marxism in the 1800s was, um, you know, based around the thought that people are oppressed based off of their class system. Mm -hmm. um, modern day Marxism is based off of kind of the theory that people are oppressed based off of their race or their, um, their gender. We got so mixed kind of with critical race theory. Yeah, yeah, less economic Marxism, more cultural Marxism. Mm -hmm. um, so people who are being taught that stuff in the universities, then they're now filtering down into kind of every facet of society as well, right? Like yep. everybody who gets those Bachelor of Arts degrees where they're taught that type of critical thinking, they then become teachers, they then become, you know, bureaucrats, yep. they then go and journalists, profits. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a, that's, that, that's certainly a problem. Um, whether it's reversible, I do not know. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew, I went to a predominantly kind of, I would argue my degree and the students that I was in my kind of program with was very left leaning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I was probably the only person with conservative, a conservative kind of viewpoint that ever has graduated with an international development degree. Um, but I always felt that, um, that, you know, there was room for debate and room for healthy conversation. Yeah. I don't think that that exists on university campuses anymore. It doesn't, which is exactly the place it's supposed to be a safe haven for. So I think that, you know, as gov as governments, we need to do more to promote free speech policies on campus. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's some work that can be done there to kind of it's okay for people to have kooky and wacky ideas on university campus. In fact, that's mm -hmm. exactly the place for them. Exactly. But you have to be able to have kind of a healthy, a healthy, uh, um, you know, conversation. And then I think the second yeah. thing is, is we need to re remind people that not everybody needs to go to university. Yep. Um, you know, you don't have to go and get your BA in history or, or political science because that's what your, your parents did when they were, out of high school, like yeah. you can go and get a skilled trade or, um, you know, become an apprentice somewhere. Um, and you'll probably end up being better off <laughs> for sure. <laughs> have mountains of student debt and, uh, yeah. and, uh, um, a useless degree that, sorry, I shouldn't say they're useless degrees. They have merit. Hey man, I, I'm on your side here in this case, but yeah, that's kind of my, uh, my, my long winded, uh, inarticulate answer to your question. I think that was quite articulate and exactly <laughs> the kind of wind that I was hoping for. Um, I think that's being spoken about in some circles. I think the biggest person you can't really ignore at this point coming out of Canada, trying to combat this is Jordan Peterson. And that was happening in Toronto. And it was debates over free speech on campus at the University of Toronto, the best university in Canada, of which he was one of the preeminent professors in the humanities there in a useful humanity, psychology is a, is a clinical designation. Um, and, you know, he seems to think that it's, uh, you know, the same underpinnings of communism that led to 
Soviet Russia are the same that are percolating these days. And it just was something that wasn't completely stamped out. And uh, so it wasn't allowed to become the main thing, but it was sort of latently in being uh, incubated in the humanities departments at universities. And then at a certain point, there hit like a, a critical opening up where, um, I don't know, just everyone was allowed to spout their own opinions and the people that shouted the loudest started to win. And it seemed to be that, you know, it was the bureaucrats that were scared of the ideologues, I guess, and s stopped doing their job and started letting the mob rule. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, I think it's a, a symptom of the universities and why it's not worth it to go in, in all cases in that they've become bloated and full of administrators. The, the professors and the students at the university serve the administrators where it used to be that it was designed for the students and it was designed to help the professors teach the students. But now all of them are worried about the paperwork and pleasing HR and the administrators and all of the new die criteria. I call it die because I think it's really hilarious that the acronym for diversity, inclusivity, um, and equity stands for die. I think it's a subconscious thing that they allowed to slip in because they want all institutions to die. And now they added in a new thing called decolonization. I don't even know what that means. Um, into science curriculum too. So it's all these scientists that, you know, got into their position by years of being treated like garbage, working crazy hours, getting paid terrible amounts to get into a position where they're supposed to have freedom to pursue the knowledge and the questions that they want openly. And now they can't do that. And so they've become this sort of like perverted version of a professor that is so gnarled in what's meaningful to them that they, they can't stand on their own two feet. They get spun around too easily or something. I don't know what it is, but I experienced it. Um, when I was leaving my degree too. It, it got really bad the last two years or so. Um, I started to see that these inclusivity criteria were expanding. And all that meant was that everyone doing their job had to do more. And you weren't allowed to hire a new professor, but you were allowed to hire three new diversity inclusion officers. And so it just became... You can't build the system to fix the problems. You can only build it to increase the amount of work to be done in service of the administrators. And to me, it almost seems like these people got these useless degrees and they started to figure out that they were useless. So they created these positions so that they'd be hired back into academia and HR departments. And now they're everywhere. Now I have to, I have to learn all the uh, protected classes at a biotech company that's trying to extend human life. Seems like it, it doesn't really add up to me. Uh, and what even is a protected class? Because I would argue that we should make giftedness a protected class in that case. And maybe that'll solve some things. I haven't paid uh, nearly as close of attention to what's happening on campuses as I probably should, but that sounds, uh, it all sounds very terrifying. It's really terrifying. And, and, it, and it's because the way I see it, it's like an avalanche of um, 
basically people's insecurity and unstableness, like essentially personality disorder characteristics that people have to do some work on themselves um, because it's not appropriate to just yell and shout and force people to do things. Um, meeting a wall of like soulless, maskless, spineless people that just get washed over and taken over because they can't stand on their own two feet. And it's, it was a slow process, right? Because there weren't problems that were facing the stone people. So it was allowed to build a, uh, you know, a whole army of these people that couldn't stand on their own two feet slowly over time. And then when push comes to shove, when, you know, there's big swings in the electorate or a global pandemic. And so there's huge uproar. They just get toppled. And so it just glaringly shows that people need to stand on their own two feet um, and critically appraise whatever situation it is. And don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe in personally, even if it's against the mob that of the group that you used to belong to or even currently belong to. But you should, you should be allowed to disagree with your friends from time to time and talk it out, right? You're here. Um, it's, it's not happening. Um, yeah. So I would say just keep an eye on it. I, I totally agree with you that we probably need to reevaluate who goes to university and what's it for. And again, uh, Jordan Peterson has some opinions like universities are too expensive. Um, they're not serving the right people. It's just unlimited jobs for administrators. So make, make them only necessary to get an accreditation to be like a doctor where you're trying to save lives or an engineer where you need to follow, follow certain guidelines. The humanities, you can learn all online yourself at this point. Um, you could even have like a really well-known university make all their courses available online. I think you can do everything you can do in a humanities classroom online, have the people read along at their own pace. Then you just cut out all of the cost of the infrastructure of providing that education, give people that education. And then if they want to have a useful profession as well, they get the accreditation. Um, but it doesn't have this bloat that then carries a bunch of angry young people that are poor, that then hate the system and they feel oppressed and they hate corporations and business people because those people got rich and some of them barely went through college or you know dropped out or whatever. Um, so that resentment builds because of the positions they kind of put themselves in. So I think you're right. Um, there's multiple factors that need to change here for a, for a new world. And I think um, you know, we're seeing the reckoning happen, whether we learn for it or not is still up for debate. Wow, lots to digest there. <laughs> yeah, well, I've had too much time on my hands, you know? It's, uh, I moved to a different country, wasn't allowed to meet anyone. I have a couple friends here. I get to see them, you know, a couple times a week if, if I'm lucky. Uh, but can't really get to know my coworkers that well. You know, a lot of work online or a lot of isolated work, things like that. And so, you know, I've had a lot of time to read and study <laughs> and ponder um, and scheme, you know. And uh, this is something that's come out of all that stewing and scheming um, and just, you know, missing connection, missing talking to brilliant people like you and my other friends around the world. And so I think it's the perfect time uh, to just have the conversations, have the conversations. 
really. And, Conversations uh, are always good. Yeah, and I'm not afraid of it. And I have some really brilliant friends that uh, I love to to talk it through with. And and you guys are are what informs me and what teaches me. And uh, all my friends can see things that I can't. And so I think it's really important that I stay in touch with everyone and, and take everyone's perspective. So thanks so much for doing this with me. Appreciate it. It was a great time. <laughs> so this has been Bridge to the Bay with Dr. Varis with more to come.